Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll catch up with the playwright behind a holiday play that premiered in 1991 and is now back on stage after over 30 years. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me for a double review of the Broadway-bound Boop the Musical and a much more intimate production titled Islander. Later in the show, I'll review Emma Stone's new film Poor Things, and I'll talk to the author of a new novel, about a spouse and best friend who hate each other. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. A play that premiered in Chicago over 30 years ago is back on stage this holiday season. Christmas with Elvis originally opened in 1991, playing at the Beat Kitchen in Halstead Theater Center. Playwright Terry Spencer Hesser moved on to some other projects. She wrote a popular young adult novel about obsessive compulsive disorder and got into film, writing screenplays and directing documentaries. Fast forward a few decades, Hesser decided to revisit the play. She made some changes, and now it's back on stage at the Chopin Theater for a multiple-week run through January 7th. The two-person play is a comedy that touches on some of the bluer elements of the holiday season, plus The King. I recently caught up with Hesser at the Chopin Theater to talk about Christmas with Elvis. I think I read something that it was really a, a friend of yours that kind of sparked the initial idea. It was about 1990 or 1991, and I went to Ed DeBevick's with my daughter and her little girlfriend. And I didn't know the girlfriend's mother, but she played Elvis on the jukebox, and then she looked a little sheepish and explained that she didn't used to love Elvis until she got divorced. And then she started thinking that he was singing, and his lyrics were addressing specifically her. And I thought of it for so long, I went to sleep thinking of it and woke up thinking of it. It was like an obsessive earworm. And so that was basically the first draft of Christmas with Elvis was about this woman thinking that Elvis was ta addressing specifically her problems. And so you just started writing and then over time did the idea of actually making this a, a real play start to come together? I think I thought of it as a one-act play originally and the more I, I researched Elvis the more interesting it was and the more alike as characters they seemed in terms of the loneliness and separation from other people. It debuts here in Chicago at uh, the Beat Kitchen and then the Halstead Street Theater and it gets uh, really good reviews and you've gone on to do other things professionally. Why was now the right time to bring it back? Do I say thank you COVID? <laughs> um, <laughs> I wasn't working and I had plenty of time on my hands and everybody always asked about Elvis but so much has happened since 1990. In, in the Presley family between 1991 and now that I realized that it was going to need a complete rewrite, not just for them actually, but for the Trudy character because now it's, it's really much more about sort of a universal sense of 
loneliness covered with addiction, covered with shame, and how do we undo that? And I think I had to write something for the playbill this morning, and so I wrote that what I feel this play is about is really sort of the essential loneliness we all feel when we're feeling disappointed in each other and ourselves. That wasn't certainly what I set out to write. I set out to write a very bawdy, funny piece about sort of the human condition and the things that we grab to make ourselves feel better. It just completely evolved. During COVID, is that when you started thinking about maybe I should revisit this uh, and look at it through a different lens? Yeah, I had the time and I started noticing how lonely and strange people were acting once they couldn't actually come together anymore. I think people were drinking more and, you know, psychiatric problems were on the rise and, and kind of still are statistically, I think. And the play just seemed to be to address all of those issues. And so it was sort of a sort of a natural use of time. So let's set the uh, this stage for listeners that maybe aren't familiar with uh, the play. The main character, Trudy, has just learned that her ex-husband is getting remarried, and then she has a vision of Elvis. The low moment of anybody's life, the worst moment. So it's Christmas Eve. She's decided to stay home because it's her first essentially unmarried Christmas. They separated the year before. And she decides to avoid the parties, and you know, people are asking her to come out, and she's indulging in her loneliness. And the final phone call is her ex-husband calls to wish her a Merry Christmas, but also to let her know that he's getting married again. So it was her low moment, and she puts on, Are You Lonesome Tonight? And he wasn't just singing to her, he made an appearance. So she gets an appearance by the debauched ghost of Elvis, who's not very happy about his after-death appearances. Okay. You alluded you did some rewrites, so is, is Elvis a little different? I think Elvis is a much more sympathetic character this time. He's, he's more of a real character on his own as opposed to sort of a caricature of Elvis. I guess the way I see Elvis is interesting. One of the research trips, I went to, I went to Graceland, then I went to Tupelo, and then I happened to be with a friend who had audio equipment in his trunk, and we were coming back, and he said, do you want to go back with the audio equipment? And now it went from four days ago, completely empty, to it was mobbed. People were there from all over the world, because what I didn't realize is it was death week. So everybody makes their pilgrimage to Graceland and to Tupelo to see where he was born. Yeah, and it was, I mean, we interviewed people who came from literally everywhere. The effect he had was pretty amazing. But I also think he was such a, he was so not in control of his own decisions that he might have been the loneliest famous person in the world. Is there Elvis music in the play? There is Elvis music in the play. And um, Victor Holstein, our Elvis, is an amazing musician, a really a beautiful, beautiful voice. What was it like for you just personally revisiting this material? 30 years is a long time, so to come back to it. It's funny. I feel like in the beginning, I didn't... People in my family walked out and said, wow, that was you up there. And I thought, no, not really. And yet now I feel a little bit, a little bit, I feel more attached to the character personally, I think maybe than I did the first time. And I know more. I mean, I saw... Lisa Marie perform at a soundstage at Channel 11. And she was a mess. I mean, she just was begging for direction from her manager 
because she couldn't get it from their stage manager. She ha was having problems with the material. She's calling for her manager in the balcony, and he's just not there. And I thought, she has worse managers than her father. How can this possibly be? So yeah, I think I feel, and my son-in-law's an editor, and he edited Daisy Six and the Daisy oh, yeah. Jones and the Six. Yeah. And so for some reason, Elvis just keeps popping up in my life in all different ways all the time. For listeners that don't know, Daisy and the Six, the show on Amazon, stars Elvis's granddaughter, Riley Keough. For this new production, do you have hopes for what the audience takes away? You know, I, I, I certainly hope the audience just comes and laughs and enjoys themselves because I think, I think this has just been such a hard couple of years on people. And I do think that our country, you know, to be political, feels so very divided now. I hope everybody comes and laughs and enjoys themselves. And I think when they leave, I hope they walk out thinking that they have a stronger appreciation for their own lives, for their own set of circumstances, for their own selves and choices and disappointments, because it is that one unique opportunity to be you. At the very beginning, I asked you how this idea came about. Are you an Elvis fan? Now I am. <laughs> yeah, I really was not particularly. I can remember when my mother was going to see Elvis impersonators, and I thought, why would anyone do that? Um, and now I kind of get the even even the impersonators. There's I live in Riverside. There's a restaurant that has Elvis impersonators in Riverside, and I went to see one, and I thought, oh, I, I'm sorry, I, I wanted to go see one. I didn't. My boyfriend went and taped it, and I thought, it's it's odd, but I see it. it. He he does, even dead this many years, offer some sort of spark of life for people. Terry, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Christmas, Christmas, Christmas. That's Terry Spencer Hesser. She's the writer behind Christmas with Elvis. It's currently playing at the Chopin Theater through January 7th. Go to ChopinTheater.com for more information. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the arts section... Every Sunday morning on WDCB, check out the website over at theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the program. Go to theartsection.org. I'm not resting until I find what would make your eyes listen. Big boy, I wanna be loved by you, just you, and nobody else but you. And you are listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Gary. 93 years after first appearing on screen as a cartoon character. Betty Boop is being brought to life on stage in the new production, Boop, the Musical. The world premieres in Chicago at the CIBC Theater for a pre-Broadway tryout through December 24th. 
The boob character was created by innovative animator Max Fleischer in the early 30s. She was extremely popular for a period, then forced to tone down a bit because of the Hayes Code that went into effect in 1934. Boop has popped back up in various ways in pop culture over the decades, but she's been relatively quiet in recent years. That could change now with the new musical that has some big names involved. Book by Bob Martin, music by Grammy-winning composer David Foster, and lyrics by Susan Birkenhead. And 23-year-old Jasmine Amy Rogers plays the title role. Let's dive into it. Jonathan, what did you think? Well, Boop, the musical is a colorful, fast-moving reinvention of the classic, as you said, 1930s Betty Boop cartoon character. And, you know, the show has almost everything it needs to be probably a surefire Broadway hit. And that begins with an intelligent, very jazz-influenced score, music, by the wildly successful pop composer David Foster. The program says he's never written a musical before, but happily for him, and I guess for us, his lyricist, Susan Birkenhead, whom you named, and the book writer, Bob Martin, they are both Broadway pros who have kept Foster and each other on target, writing a series of purposeful, well-crafted songs which amply served served to uh, both the characters and the story. So those eggs, as far as the score is concerned, those eggs are all in the basket. And the same thing goes for what I would call the brilliant design elements, especially projections designed by Finn Ross and illusions designed by Skylar Fox. They blend seamlessly and fluidly with the scenic and lighting designs, which are essential to this story and this production, which borrows a trope from the wonderful 1988 movie, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which a lot of listeners will remember. And the trope that it borrows is the idea that tunes, cartoon characters, are perfectly real, and they exist alongside our human reality. In the case of Betty Boop, she's a goddess of 1930s black-and-white animated cartoons and exists in an entirely black-and-white world And when she wants to get away from her heavy studio workload and her celebrity, she uses a time machine to bounce into the all-color human world of 2023 New York City, where she soon becomes involved in romance and a political campaign. And also finds out that she is still a celebrated, iconic figure. There's a wonderful moment early on in Act One when, like Dorothy Gale in The Wizard of Oz, Betty Boop goes from black and white to color, and the transition between worlds is enchanting and really brilliantly done. Carrie, I've talked enough. (laughs) Yes, and actually that's one of the things that Betty talks about, too, is that she's talked about more than she actually is speaking for herself. What really starts her adventures is being asked in the black and white world, who is the real Betty Boop? And she realizes, I don't really know. So in part, her trip to the future the real world, whatever you want to call it, although as you said, Jonathan, there is a realness to the tune world that she occupies, is part of that quest to find out, who am I? Uh, There's also maybe a little hint of Barbie in this as well, you know, moving from the sort of fictional class, you know, whatever that world was, although obviously Barbie is not a black and white world, to the real world, and finding out just what is it like for women there. Uh, She finds out, you know, things have changed, but not as much as one would like. I do think there is some work that could be done on the book, but I think wisely, Bob Martin, who also wrote The Drowsy Chaperone, which is kind of a nice little throwback to the 20s kind of uh, 
you know, about that kind of nostalgia for the 20s. He knows how to thread that needle between nostalgia and contemporary. I just think that there needs to be a bit more connective tissue between those worlds at this point. But he does really focus, as does the score, on the women and on the fact that Betty is not a sex symbol. Even early days in the cartoon, she was running for president and I think governor and mayor and flying planes and doing all kinds of amazing things. Um, and now she's in this world where she's trying to find out who she is and how she can use those talents, I think significantly, to help the women around her. She becomes involved in a political campaign after she meets a young girl. What I thought was great, Jonathan, you talked about the Dorothy Wizard of Oz. Instead of landing in Oz, she lands in the middle of Comic-Con, which I thought was just brilliant. <laughs> you know, because they all think she's the best cosplay person they've ever seen. Comic-Con or Oz, maybe it's a distinction. With <laughs> yeah, exactly. And she meets a young girl who's an orphan being raised by her aunt, who idolizes you know Betty. She goes home. The aunt is running a political campaign for a guy who is the solid waste uh, supervisor of the city of New York and is running on a campaign to clean up the city. But as we often know, politicians, what they say and who they are, are also often at odds. He kind of gloms onto Betty because he realizes her popularity, enduring as it has for almost 100 years, will help his popularity, but he never lets her talk, and she realizes that. And then, of course, like so many of the men she had to face in the black and white world, he's not above chasing her around desks, you know, doing some doing doing some dirty things. <laughs> uh, so it's, I, I think that that's where maybe they can tighten the book a little bit or sharpen up the focus. But the other part I wanted to ask you about, Jonathan, I loved the characters of Grampy and Valentina, Grampy being Betty's grandfather who kind of creates these Rube Goldberg-esque inventions, and indeed one of them is the, the, the way that she gets transported into the, into the future or, or, you know, our time. And then Valentina is sort of his long-lost love, played by the wonderful Faith Prince. Um, but I felt like their story, though, it's funny... Um, and Charming needed to be connected a little bit better to the story of Betty in that world. I, I, I'm not trying to give away too many plot points, but I feel like maybe that's where, in terms of strengthening the story, if indeed they're going to be doing any more rewrites, that would be one place right. I would look yeah. at. There are a lot of plot points to, that needs to be said, and while your uh, take on the show is absolutely there, uh, I wouldn't want people to think that this show is in any way over-politicized. Oh, gosh, it is, no. It is no. Not. This is a musical comedy, and it remains that through, throughout the, the course of the show. Right. It's a big show. It has a 30-person performing company and a six-piece or a 16, excuse me, a 16-piece orchestra, and both of those numbers are large by today's Broadway standards. So the show has size and great depth of talent. The voices are wonderful. The voices are all huge. Jasmine, Amy Rogers, this 23 years old, is oh, dazzling, dazzling and buoyant as I, Betty. I think the term star turn was invented, a star-making performance, if ever I've seen one. I yeah. have yeah. But also Ainsley Anthony Mellon, who is a brooding perfectionist or jazz musician, human love interest. And all the supporting players are equally vibrant and talented, like Faith Prince, whom you mentioned. And everyone in the show, all of the, 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 the principals, plus a few others, have a song in a what is really a true ensemble score, uh, um, the, the kind that you rarely see in, in a Broadway musical. So what does Boop need? What does it need to do during the Chicago tryout? Well, you know what? If they did nothing, it's probably still 
still would go over well in New York. I think but so, are, yes. I, But I agree with you that there are a couple of things. Now, first of all, and Carrie and Gary, you both heard me say this before when we've discussed new musicals, the intermission is at the wrong place because nothing is at stake emotionally for Betty. The intermission is at a moment where she's absolutely happy. Mm-hmm. Everyone around her is happy. And in fact, she sings a song that she's where I want to be. So why bother to come back for Act 2 to see how everything works out? Everything is great. So what the authors need to do is to advance the love story. So the lover's squabble, which now comes in Act 2, it needs to come before the intermission so there's something emotionally at stake. Maybe they advance the political subplot too, somehow tie them together. Um, the other thing I would say is they need to trust the audience more with the show's happy ending. The story itself and the characters resolve themselves happily, and then what do they do? They have added a totally unnecessary, let's jack up the audience production number, and they should 86 that. There also is a number in Act 1, it's a perfectly lovely number, charming, but it's only padding, because they seem to think the show is too short. Uh, you know, I have news for the producers, a two-hour show, or a show that runs 2.15 is just fine. It doesn't have to be two and a half hours or two hours and 45 minutes. So those are the things I would do. And you know what? They're not going to listen to me, Carrie. Okay. But, but, you know, here's another thing I think we need to emphasize. Jonathan, how many times have you and I talked about the jukebox musicals or the musicals that are derived yeah. from an existing film script? Yes, Betty right. has been around forever, but this is an original story. This is an original musical, yes, based on Betty Boop, but they're not literally, well, in some ways they are recreating cartoons. But, I mean, these stories, although they may be archetypal, it is a new story. And I think that that's one thing I would give them a lot of credit for, um, for executing this so successfully and with such a strong cast. And I have to say, there's such a, you're right, it's not overly politicized. There is, a, there is a strong woman at the center of it, a few strong women, actually. Yeah. And that message is about joy. It's not about, it, there is struggle, but it's about the absolute joy they find in creating, in making efforts to change the world, in romance. Um, and I think that that's what I found so very attractive, what I suspect a lot of audiences will find, particularly with the way things are going in the world, right, to have a right. musical that is just unabashedly big, vibrant, colorful, and filled with this kind of, you know, it, it not it not any kind of cynical or not in a wink way, like, oh, you know, aren't, isn't it stupid to fall in love with these kinds of songs or with these kinds of stories? Absolutely not. It is embracing it. It is big-hearted. And when you have that, I think audiences will forgive, you know, the occasional things that we've talked about, like maybe this plot point, subplot point isn't as developed as I would like to see it, or these relationships are not as fleshed out. Yes, you can still work on that, but I think... My my suspicion is a lot of audiences will be absolutely happy to go along on this ride, just yeah. as I was. Yeah, you are right. Audiences will forgive, but uh, my job as critic is not to forgive and to call. The, that doesn't mean I didn't enjoy it. I had a hell of a good time. Um, but to call these things to their attention, because right. it's still information. This is the broad Absolutely, yeah. They can make some fixes. But, 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 I, but are, I, think I, you, I, I need to agree with you on one thing. It is, you're absolutely right, the rarest thing in all of musical theater, a completely original story. And right. the, the character is not original, but the story is. And an right. original musical and, is extremely 
And, uh, and I think you and I have talked yeah. about musicals that feel like they're cynical money grabs, quite honestly. Like, here's a, here is a very popular film property. Let's turn it into a musical because people will pay money for it because they already know the story, right? This has yeah. not a whiff of cynicism about it. You know, it, it is a big, obviously very well-funded musical just based on the technical elements alone, which I would agree with you are fantastic, but also don't overwhelm. I think we talked about this with Tommy earlier this year that, you know, it can be tricky, and I think Tommy did a good job of it, too, when you bring in, you know, all the projections and all the bells and whistles. Is this actually advancing the story, or is it being used to cover up for flaws? I didn't feel that in this case particularly at all. Um, yeah. I think the transformation scene that you referenced is just absolutely magical, and boop is a bop. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> Two boops up. <laughs> Two boops up. <laughs> Boop the Musical continues at the CIBC Theater through December 24th. I think I read that uh, Bill Gates was there opening night. Oh, my goodness. Did you guys <laughs> see him in the audience? Bill Gates? Could, he, he could afford a ticket? That's good. <laughs> I didn't see Bill Gates, but I'm pretty sure I saw Mark Cuban there. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I saw a lot of people who I'm sure were famous, but I couldn't tell you who they were. Because that, you know, I'm at that age where I look at the covers of the magazines and the checkout line and well, think, who were, is this person? <laughs> they were all black and white movie stars. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Before we wrap up, we actually have a, another kind of mini-review. Both uh, the critics went and saw a production out at the Chicago Shakespeare Theater called Islander. Now, this one, as opposed to Betty Boop, is very minimalist. It's just two actors playing all the parts and also doing all the sound, all the music. Um, it was developed through uh, various stages in Scotland and had a great run in 2019 at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe and has been brought in now as part of Chicago Shakespeare's World Stage series. It's kind of a, you know, a little bit, a little bit like Brigadoon, only not as tweet. <laughs> it's kind of a story about a Celtic fable where there's a small island in contemporary times called Kinnon, a fictional island, and there's one child left on this island in a world of adults. The island population is moving to the mainland. They have to decide, do we stay or do we go? I guess you could call it kicks it. Do we stay on Kinnon or do we exit? Um, and all of this kind of comes into sharp focus when uh, Ailey, the young girl who is the one child left on the island, first encounters a dying whale calf and then another young woman who claims to be uh, part of a tribe that sort of separated from the island way back, you know, hundreds of years earlier. There was a split between the more seafaring folk and the farm folk who stayed on the island. So that's sort of the background for this fabulistic tale. Um, that, as I, as I sort of felt myself being absorbed into it, I found really was about community, commitment, um, and I, it, it's a very, very interesting offering. And um, I found myself overall pretty beguiled by it. It took me a little while to warm to it, but once I did, uh, I was very, very glad that I got to see it. Jonathan, what are your thoughts on it? Well, I have mixed uh, a mixed response. It is a beautiful, uh, uh, if you will, elegiac piece, uh, mm-hmm. and it is most unusual because there are no musical instruments in it. Mm-hmm. All of the music uh, is provided by the voices of the two female performers, uh, the voices, their claps, their clicks, their breathing, mm-hmm. all of which is put through uh, computer sampling, is looped in various ways to create a background score over which they sing their solos and their duets together. 
the two uh, actors in it uh, play all of the roles, and there are about, I guess, about a dozen named characters. So this is very, very intriguing. It's uh, straight through. It's, um, uh, what was it, 90 minutes at most or even even a little bit less. Um, and I found it intriguing and atmospheric, but my problem is it is not clear, at least it was not to me, as to who each character is and what is happening. The the basic expository information is difficult to extract from the totality of the piece. And if they have some way to improve that, change that, I think they have a, a wonderful show. Not a commercial show, but this could be the sort of thing that enjoys a, a, a particular and, and good off-Broadway run in New York and could be done widely at other venues as well. And Islander continues upstairs at Chicago Shakespeare through December 17th. Okay. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're, you're welcome, most Carrie. welcome. <laughs> Now I'm Gary Zydek, and it's movie review time on the arts section. Yorgos Lanthimos' new film, Poor Things, premiered at the Venice International Film Festival this fall and won the prestigious Golden Lion Award. Lanthimos, a Greek filmmaker, garnered praise for his 2015 indie hit The Lobster and then really grabbed people's attentions with 2019's The Favorite, which was nominated for 10 Academy Awards. Always wanting to push boundaries, Poor Things is likely Lanthimos' most ambitious film, which is saying something. Based on Alistair Gray's 1992 novel of the same name, the film keeps the time period vague, but it feels like the end of the 1800s. After a brief opening scene of a woman jumping off London's Tower Bridge, we enter a black and white landscape and meet Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone, and her adoptive dad, Godwin Baxter, played by Willem Dafoe. In these early scenes, it's clear Bella is an adult woman, but she acts like a toddler, spitting out food she dislikes and stumbling around Godwin's strange house-slash-laboratory. Godwin is a scientist-doctor teaching anatomy by day and conducting crazy experiments at night. We soon learn, and this really isn't a spoiler, that the reason Bella acts like a young child is because her brain is that of a baby's. Unable to revive the woman who jumped off the bridge at the beginning of the movie, Godwin goes full Frankenstein and resurrects her using a transplanted brain. Godwin is now raising her in secret as his daughter. Eventually, Bella's brains begin catching up with her body, and Godwin introduces her to one of his med students, Max, and devises a plan that would allow them to get married but they would have to live in his house under strict rules. Max, a gentle soul, is smitten with Bella. The plan is foiled by an attorney that's brought into the situation by Godwin to create a prenuptial agreement. The lawyer, Duncan Wedderburn, is played by Mark Ruffalo. He ends up crossing paths with Bella, falls for her, and proposes she leaves Max and join him on an adventure. Bella, by this point, has had her sexual awakening and is trying to learn as much about the world as possible since she has never left Godwin's house. The two embark on a journey that takes them to Lisbon, Athens, and Paris, with the film reverting back to magnificent color once they arrive in Portugal. Though Wedderburn presents himself as a progressive champion of women who wishes to free Bella from Godwin's clutches, he really wants to control her just in a different way. 
Babella, who has the mind and spirit of an older child by this time, can't be tamed. Cracks begin to form in their relationship as Bella grows more confident. Their journey continues. Bella meets new people who expand her horizons. Let's listen to a clip from Four Things. In this scene, Bella is starting to assert some of her independence from Wetterburn after she meets some intellectuals on an ocean liner. These two are fighting and ideas are banging around in Bella's head and heart like lights in a storm. Oh. You're always reading now, Bella. You're losing some of your adorable way of speaking. I'm a changingable feast, as are all of we. Apparently, according to Emerson, disagreed with by Harry. Come, come, just come. You were in my son. What? That was a clip from the new film Poor Things. You heard Emma Stone and Mark Ruffalo. The two end up in Paris with no money, which leads Bella to try out the oldest profession in the world. She ends up taking to it, so she stays there. There's some graphic sex scenes throughout the film. Not violent or titillating, just graphic. Bella returns to London upon learning of Godwin's failing health. Once there, she's confronted with some decisions about her future. I won't go into any spoilers. Poor Things isn't shot like a traditional period piece. Lanthimos changes up the film stock and camera angles to mirror Bella's evolution. There's a lot of fisheye perspective early in the film that corresponds with Bella's view of the world around her. As she matures, the angles and film lenses change. There are also some hints of fantastical imagery at different points of the movie. An ambitious project like this requires great performances or the premise doesn't work. The audiences won't take it seriously. Stone is phenomenal as Bella. It's a bit of a tightrope playing the role straight but also allowing for the natural comedic elements to come through. While the first part of the film is fairly whimsical, the second half gets into some darker themes. Defoe is excellent as the badly scarred mad scientist slash father figure Godwin and Ruffalo is absolutely hilarious as a rakish cad. I expect all three will receive multiple award nominations. Poor Things will have its detractors, but I found it electric. Lanthimos has created a visual spectacle full of color and contrast. The story is unpredictable. There's no formulaic approach to this coming-of-age story. Bella evolves before our eyes, but we have no idea where she's headed. That's the best type of cinematic journey. I give Poor Things 4 out of 4 stars. It's currently playing at select theaters, including 3 in Chicago, Landmark Century Center on Clark, the Alamo Draft House in Wrigleyville, and the AMC River East. The hope is it'll expand to some other theaters in the coming weeks. We'll have to wait and see. Poor Things came out on Friday. I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the Arts Section. There's no shortage of holiday-themed theatrical productions this time of year, as we've heard earlier in the show. Some popular plays and musicals return year after year and become traditions. Looking Glass Theater premiered The Steadfast Tin Soldier in 2018. It was a hit, and the company brought it back in subsequent Decembers. But Looking Glass won't be remounting The Steadfast Tin Soldier on stage this year after the Tony Award-winning company announced this past summer that it was pausing programming for the remainder of the year. The announcement shocked many in the local theater scene, given Looking Glass's standing as an arts leader. The company is expected to present live productions in the spring of 2024. 
Looking Glass will be continuing the steadfast tin soldier tradition this season in a different form. The theater company will be presenting three special programs next week that include screenings of a recorded version of the holiday favorite. On Saturday, December 16th, there will be a puppets and popcorn program at 11 a.m. and a Prosecco and party pants program in the evening. Both will include a screening of the steadfast tin soldier. And then on Sunday, December 17th, the company is presenting a breakfast screening of the play. Based on a Hans Christian Andersen story, the play's themes are universal no matter the time period, but I think they're especially relevant right now. In the story, a toy soldier missing a leg falls in love with a paper ballerina, but a stream of characters with bad intentions and a series of unfortunate events keeps them apart. Despite the constant adversity, not only does the soldier not give up, he remains positive throughout the journey. I caught up with acclaimed Chicago-based theater artist Mary Zimmerman to talk about the steadfast tin soldier. She adapted the story for stage and directed all of the productions of the play. What initially attracted you to this uh, Hans Christian Andersen story? They say that steadfast tin soldier is the only story of Hans Christian Andersen's collection that he actually originated. In other words, these were folk tales, known stories that he brings into the form, the literary form that we know them from. But they think that Steadfast is his own. It doesn't have a prior source. And it's so much about something that I think every, almost every human being feels, which we feel that maybe there's something a little wrong with us that's different from other people and that is somehow something we have to overcome. Yet it has this phenomenal sort of message of just put one foot in front of the other, even if you only have one foot. You know, just sort of keep going. Be steadfast. And I liked, I liked that sentiment a lot, and I sort of identified, and I think a lot of people do, with the kind of miniature epic quality of it, where he's tossed around by fate, adventures happen to him, and he just has to sort of keep his chin up and persist. And eventually his adventures sort of come full circle and restore him home in a way. So it's all, it's all of those things. And I thought it was potentially very, very visual. And so I read in the program about your thought process creating the narrative for something yeah. without a lot of dialogue. Is that something where you have to completely change your development process, the way you think of staging something, or, or did that come pretty naturally? Well, it comes pretty naturally because I've always had moments in my shows where there isn't any talking generally and things are shown visually. I've always paid a lot of attention to transitions and made them very much part of the show, even though there's no speaking, but make them visually interesting and sort of storytelling. But this was a unique challenge. I mean, just because it only had a couple lines of, of spoken words in it. And generally, when you're adapting something, you might look for something that has a lot of dialogue in it, right? Because that's the medium of the theater, is dialogue, is people speaking to each other. This had almost none. And when I noticed that, I thought, why do I not? I, I might try and do it with absolutely none, with no speaking at all, purely visually, just visual storytelling. And that idea immediately was sort of frightening and exciting and felt very right, and it's been super joyful. But yes, the process is different. No no script to this moment exists for this show. There's no script. The musical score, which is, you know, constant throughout, is the only calling script. The stage manager follows that and has notes written in when certain things happen. But there's no there's no written script 
<laughs> Though that's not to say it's not completely worked out. You know, from night to night, it has a kind of great consistency to it because it, it's so formed by the music. And we always have the music in the room. We never rehearsed without the music. Uh, we were learning the pianists and the composers were sort of coming up with the music as we were coming up with the action. And they they worked in a kind of figure eight with each other, each influencing the other. The actors started to time themselves to the music, and the music started to accent what the actors were doing. So it was a very different process, because there's no lines to learn, and there were no lines for me to write. <laughs> Just actions to conceive. <laughs> one of the, the neat visual things, I mean, the whole show is... is beautiful but uh, one of the, the neat things is how you're able to to play with scale and, and go from yeah. different sizes i just had to you know it was kind of necessary right so sometimes the tin soldier's played by an actor and he's full-sized and then sometimes he's like 18 inches big and sometimes he's like and he's a prop and sometimes he's like six or eight inches big and is a prop and the reason for that is that way i can have I can keep switching scales into kind of close-up and long shot, and you, you see him as a real person, and then you see him as a hapless little toy in the world, in a way. And that, that creates a lot of um, pathos around him, partly. But it also allows me to have, like, a giant baby playing with his new gift of little tin soldiers. Because in real life, those things would be just, like, two inches big, right? So we have a giant baby playing with these 18-inch soldiers, and then when he's out in the world with, like, real grown-ups, he shrinks to sort of eight inches. But when he's interacting with other toys, he's full-sized, um, like the paper ballerina. He's the size of the other toys. And I think something about that, you know, the audience just sort of enjoys that, you know. The fish as well that swallows him has... Um, a couple, di three different sizes. He has a very giant size when he first swallows him. He has a medium size when he's swimming around with him in his belly. And then he has a regular salmon size size when he's served at dinner right, with, the, right. with the tin soldier in his belly. So they all, they all shift around like that. And it helps to tell that story, right? Oh, it's yeah. necessary. Yeah. I have to say, as uh, I have a 22-month-old at, at home, so the baby, uh, I don't know how old the baby is supposed to be in the, this story, but some of his mannerisms, you know, rang, rang true yeah. for me. Not that my son is a terror or anything, but... Uh. Yeah, the little toddler, as we call him, because he's some, at, we, when we first see him, he's giant. He's a giant puppet with a giant head and hands, but then he's kind of life-sized, and I, I think we think of him as, like two to three years old, two and a half maybe, so close, close to your child a lot. Yeah, that scene, um, the little puppet that can't find his toy because yeah. it's fallen out <laughs> the window, the way his little feet are so frantic <laughs> and how insistent he is in going to look for his toy, the little fit that he throws by stamping his feet, is it's the audience just sort of, it's extremely recognizable for some reason. Just the motion of that little puppet is really exquisite, I think. It is, it is for sure. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Chicago-based theater director Mary Zimmerman about her play, The Steadfast Tin Soldier. So you're, you've already referenced the uh, the music and, and what an important yeah. role it plays, and so that's you know that's where the sound is coming from. Did you have uh, an idea of, of what you wanted the music to be for this when you were conceiving it? I guess I did. I mean, I certainly wanted it to be cheerful, and when I 
try to explain the show to people, I'd say what it's most like is sort of a, like a, I hope, one of the, like, really good old Warner Brothers cartoons that don't have any words in them. But they always have a soundtrack, right? They always have music. And the music is quite up-tempo. I think of it as sort of music hall-ish. I don't even know exactly what I mean. (laughs) But it's sort of up-tempo. It has a, a comic or jolly air to it. everything has its own tune but within that it's quite repetitive because you don't want it to dominate or draw too much attention to to itself away from sort of translating the story that you're watching right it doesn't want to ever upstage the the visual thing that's happening it has variations in the a and b parts and so forth but it is it is a little bit you know it's a little bit circular so that we can relax into watching into watching the piece and it's my longtime composer Andre Plus our original pianist and also Amanda Dennard who did arrangements um and i can't say enough about the music and the presence of the four live musicians how important that is to me i mean we maybe could do it to tape but it's an entirely different feel having them there and they're very commenting with all kinds of little details on the action and they interact with the action a little bit at times too which is very delightful to me yeah that was kind of a fun surprise the kind of (laughs) breaking of the wall and i don't think this is a a spoiler but what what can you tell me about that final song the final song so at the end it's curtain call and the audience generally thinks it's over but we hold up a little sign that says final song. And I kind of always thought, because I've got a couple of really good singers in the cast, and, you know, I make my own shows and I make them for the cast that's in them, basically. They're cast before they're written, in a way. I don't know. I just felt it was somehow fitting to break that silence. You know, you've seen these five people sort of restrained in a certain way for an hour, and then all of a sudden they're singing to you, And not only that, but it becomes very explicit what the kind of little message is of the story. And I always knew there was going to be a song, but I I kept delaying writing the lyrics, and I got behind. And we actually went through several previews the first year with no song at the end. And then when I finally came in with it, I could tell the actors were grumpy about it. Like, here we are, we've got the show under its belt, we're kind of up and running, and now we have to learn a song. (laughs) And yet... Now it's it's unimaginable without the song. I want that song sung at my funeral, frankly. Like I love <laughs> I love that song so much. And it's it's sort of witty, I think, but the message is no matter what happens, just just always be steadfast. There's a line in it, it matters how you go. And adults will understand that to be literally in part how you die, because spoiler alert, you know, dark things happen in the in the play. But um, children, I think, sort of don't quite hear that, or they hear that as uh, it matters how you go along. But I am introducing the idea of, like, courage just for its own sake, just for your own sake, to have dignity, to have courage, to be steadfast, to be self-contained. 
that you do have agency even in times that you think you don't, and the agency you have is in how you react. And the steadfast in soldier is always steadfast, even when he is in impossible, impossible circumstances. And at the beginning, you know, he meets a ballerina, and he thinks that they're alike, because he thinks she only has one leg at first, because she's standing on one point. Um, but then he realizes that she has two. And she kind of teaches him to dance, which he can't do very well, right? Because he only has one leg, keeps falling over and so forth. So she has this great gracefulness. But in the end, when they're both kind of meeting their end, she keeps wanting to crumple and um, she doesn't want to do anything but sort of give in. And he leads her in a mirror of the dance they did when they met. In other words, they each have what the other doesn't. He may not have physical grace and ability like her, but he has character and he has courage and he sort of teaches her that in the last moment, which is really moving. It's just super moving, I think. Mary, it's a pleasure talking to you. Well, thanks for coming and thanks for paying attention to it. We super, super appreciate it. So thank you. That's Mary Zimmerman the adapter and director of Looking Glass Theater's The Steadfast Tin Soldier. It's not being presented live this year because of a pause in operations at Looking Glass, but the company is presenting three screenings of The Holiday Favorite next weekend. You can find more info at lookingglasstheater.org. This is the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydig. How would you cope if the two most important people in your life hated each other? Hopefully that's not your reality or something you've ever had to deal with. The situation is at the heart of the new hit novel, The Three of Us. It comes from British-Nigerian writer Ore Agbaje Williams. The story swirls around three central characters, a wife, a husband, and the best friend. The wife character is in the middle of a years-long rivalry between her spouse and her oldest best friend, Teme. Neither the wife nor the husband's names are ever revealed. The Three of Us unfolds over the course of a single day where a series of events ramps up the tensions between the three. We, the readers, get a sense of each character's true feelings because Agbaje Williams gives us each of their point of views at different parts of the day. I recently caught up with the London-based author to talk about her new novel. So I think I, I read that you had been playing around with this idea for a while. What was the, the starting point for what ended up turning into The Three of Us? I had just started seeing somebody, um, and I was telling my best friend, uh, Grace, who the book is dedicated to, actually, and I was saying, oh, I really like him, and she sort of half joke. She was like, oh, now you're going to get a boyfriend, and I'm never going to see you, you're going to take up all your time. And I said, oh, no, you have to understand that you come first. Um, and um, uh, so then it got me thinking of, actually, I wonder what would happen if, you know, there was a situation whereby a best friend wasn't happy about a relationship, and you know, there was someone caught in the middle and how that would all work. And then the character of Temi was literally the first person I wrote. So the first line that's in there is the first line that I wrote in the book, Temi Comes Over at 12. And it all just sort of flowed from there. Um, and thankfully, I sort of kept going with it and really just enjoyed the process of writing it, honestly. And yeah, ended up here, which is incredible. Right, right. Safe to say that not, not autobiographical, Grace and Temi aren't the same? No, thank goodness. My, my friend Grace is honestly one of the... One of the loveliest people in the world. So even though she likes to think it's inspired by her, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> we have the wife, her husband, and her best friend, and, and we really get to know each of them because we're getting their 
innermost thoughts. What was your approach to, to creating these three characters? Um, I honestly wanted characters who felt a bit ridiculous. Um, I love the idea of sort of rich, messy people. Like, I really love TV shows like Succession and White Lotus. And I also really love, really love the series uh, Big Little Lies. Like, just those concepts where you have really wealthy people just behaving quite ridiculously. Um, and I really love that idea. And I wanted to tap into it from a sort of British Nigerian perspective. And all surrounding like a really minute, well, minute or big problem, depending on how you see it. And so I just thought, who are the most ridiculous, excessive characters you can find? You have the wife who's very sort of one note and droll. She seems to be kind of emotionless. And then the husband who complains about everything. And then Tammy, who has absolutely no filter and says everything that is on her mind. Um, and I just, <laughs> I thought that was a really interesting um, sort of dynamic to have the three of them like that. So, um, and they just, they just sort of built, built sort of mind of their own as I wrote them. Um, and I felt like I was getting to know them better as, as I was writing them as well. As far as writing style, we get each of their perspectives at different points of this wine-soaked day. Uh, did you, <laughs> did you play around with POV shifts during the? the writing process or did you always know like I, I wanted to kind of go chronologically I think I knew I wanted to go chronologically when I realized I was going to write three perspectives because originally I think I had just thought it would be the wife um, and then I thought okay actually no, I need to hear from the other two and I thought for me at least I thought Tammy would be the most explosive because she seems to be the one at least according to the husband at least and maybe a bit of the wife the one who's causing the most attention so I thought she's going to be sort of the, the climax of it, the one that everyone's looking forward to, so she needs to come at the end. So I think I, I knew once I decided I was going to get through perspectives. Let's pause here for a second and listen to a clip from the audio version of The Three of Us. This is from the wife's perspective at the very beginning of the book. Timmy comes over at 12. She brings along the wine and the kettle chips I asked her to bring, as well as a packet of cigarettes. She called when she was at the till to ask if I needed a lighter because the woman who was serving her had asked the same question. I could tell she had the phone in between her shoulder and her chin, because I could hear her coat rustling. I said no to the lighter, because we had matches at home, but also because I knew I wouldn't end up smoking, not if my husband would be able to smell it on me. She was late. I knew she would be. She told me she would get here by 11, but it was 11.45 when she called me from the shop. I knew she would be late before that, though, because she always is. It's her thing. She's the only person I let come to anything late. That's what happens when you're best friends. You let things slide. Besides, today we were supposed to have been in another country, acting like we didn't speak English and wearing sunglasses indoors, and it's my fault we're not. Something that she reminded me of when she informed me this morning that she would be coming over. I haven't seen her in almost a month, so I can't really justify complaining. So anyway, she arrives at 12. That's a clip from the audiobook version of The Three of Us. My name's Gary Zydek. You're listening to the art section. I'm talking with the novel's author, Ori Agbaje-Williams. And then something that I ended up really taking to was the, the way you wrote the, uh, the character's internal monologues. Even as conversations are happening, it all kind of blends into a singular narrative. Well, I didn't really meant to do it on purpose until I found myself doing it I suppose and I think what I felt was just because like you said it was these internal monologues that if I pulled the speech out that it would feel just kind of like they were telling a story 
And in as much as they kind of are telling a story of sorts, they're not doing it actively. They're just kind of presenting their own version of the truth from inside their own minds. And so I thought it makes the most sense to have that sort of come out in their own voice and have it all feel very internal because even the way they are representing what people are saying is very much how they are hearing it and how they are interpreting it rather than not it being 100% accurate to what's being said. So I thought that would be a really good way of sort of putting those two pulling those two ideas together of that being internal monologue and also them presenting their versions of the truth. And yeah, I just I really liked it. I liked the way it flowed and I liked sort of the way it felt writing it as well. So then I just sort of really fell into it and really enjoyed it. Yeah, it took me like a second so when I started it and then like quickly I was like, oh yeah, this makes total sense. Um, <laughs> And then just to kind of go along with that, I and I don't want to oversimplify by like referencing pop culture, but yeah, I get that the White Lotus and the um, even like maybe a little Real Housewives, and then yeah. uh, and then the internal monologue. I don't know if did you ever watch that um, that British sitcom Peep Show? Like it gave me that kind of vibe yeah. a little bit. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so I think like the best, you know, the best pieces of uh, culture uh, films. TV shows, books, or like Rorschach tests where we, you know, different, we can all look at them and get different things. Mm. You know, with these characters, I yeah, that's kind of the sense I get. If I talk to like a, a group of three different people that read this, uh, we might come away with uh, three different takes on, on the characters. Now that the, the book is out, are you enjoying reading how various people are interpreting it? Yes, that has been one of the most um, enjoyable parts of this process, actually. Because some people have had very, very visceral reactions to the best friend. Um, and some people have gone to the end of being like, oh, my gosh, I don't even know what just happened. I just, I need more or stuff like that. And I, I really love those reactions. Just even hearing people, watching people in the comments talk about it, like under a post where someone shared it. And they're like, oh, I thought this and I thought this. I've really, really enjoyed that. And then even getting to talk to people like you about it is just incredible. And I think that's one of the most enjoyable parts of this process, just getting to hear people's different reactions and see how they've interpreted it. And also knowing that they feel very strongly and deeply about certain characters has been really fun. I really enjoyed it. I read it in one night. All right. Thanks so much, oh, thank you so for, much. for making time to, to talk with me. No, of course. It's my pleasure. Thank you again so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That's Ore Agbaje Williams, the author of the novel, The Three of Us. You can find it everywhere books are sold. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Art Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links to go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Happy Hanukkah to those who are celebrating. Thanks for listening. Thank you.